You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1948th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 28th of September 2023. The editor of this edition is myself, Graham Parley, the producer is Roger Morris and your readers are Sue Harrington-Spear and myself, Graham Parley. We should also like to mention our processing team who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We commence with the headlines. New flood defence is set to be tested in coastal town. Drinking water pipeline, yes, as grid planned. Light fears as plans are lodged for gas plant on land at farm. Last bank closure, a blow. A coastal town's tidal wall defence, which will help reduce the risk of flooding, is set to be tested this week. A training exercise will be held in Lowestoft as the recently completed tidal wall defences are set to be tested in readiness for the winter season. The deployment of a section of the new defences and floodgates will be tested during the training exercises, which took place between 8am and 4pm on Thursday, September 21st. The permanent tidal flood defences will be used in combination with the existing temporary flood barriers to reduce the risk of flooding to the town. Every year, the emergency response against a tidal surge, such as that which happened in December 2013, is tested and those operating the barriers are put through their paces to ensure that East Suffolk Council can provide the best possible response to the threat of a North Sea tidal wage surge. This year, the exercise will be held at Hamilton Road, where all the demountable defences will be deployed. The defences will be installed, dissembled and restowed as part of the exercise. Kay Yule, East Suffolk Cabinet Member for Planning and Coastal Management, said, It is essential that we regularly test our emergency response to avoid the severity of flooding experienced by people and businesses in 2013. If required, the demountable defences and temporary flood barriers are deployed in places around the town where flooding was at its worst at that time. Each year we carry out a trial deployment to ensure we are ready to face the winter. The tidal flood walls began construction in May 2021 and have been built along Hamilton Road, Waveney Road, Station Square and around the Royal Norfolk and Suffolk Yacht Club and South Pier. The defences on Hamilton Road, Waveney Road and Station Square are made up of a mix of solid flood walls, demountable defences and floodgates, while glass flood walls run around the Yacht Club and South Pier. With the tidal flood walls now completed, they will form part of this exercise for the first time this year. Plans for a 69-kilometre water pipeline between Bury St Edmunds and Colchester are a step closer following a decision on Monday. The plans were submitted by Anglian Water in December 2022 and are part of a larger drinking water grid spanning hundreds of kilometres. On Monday, West Suffolk Council was the first local authority to grant planning permission for a 17-kilometre stretch going through the district. An officer report to councillors said a 14-kilometre section of pipeline would run from Reed 
to Little Wellneatham, while the next 37-kilometre section would start at Little Wellneatham and run to Worsted. The hybrid planning application also seeks full planning permission for above-ground infrastructure at Rushbrook and outline approval for above-ground infrastructure at Little Saxham and Little Wellneatham. The overall grid will span from Lincolnshire to Essex, moving water from the wettest parts of the north of the region to some of the driest areas, with Suffolk benefiting particularly from the project. At the time of the project's announcement, John Neal, who is responsible for delivering the Bury section, said the pipelines would ensure a resilient infrastructure as new homes were built. He added, they are vital in addressing the predicted jaws of death moment for water availability in the east of England, the point at which demand for water greatly outstrips the available supply. Anglian Water is still waiting for decisions from Bayburg and Mid-Suffolk District Councils. However, spokespeople for both councils said a decision was expected soon. Councillors whose wards would be most affected by a proposed biomethane plant have urged residents to make their views known after a planning application finally went live. It is now one year since news first broke of Acorn Bioenergy's intention to create an anaerobic digestion AD plant on land near Springgrove Farm in Withersfield next to the A1307 and close to Haverhill. The facility would generate biogas which is upgraded on site into biomethane before being removed by tanker to a central facility for injection into the national grid. Documents submitted by Acorn Bioenergy as part of the planning application state that about 92,000 tonnes of feedstock such as silage, rye, maize and grass, straw and poultry litter and farmyard manure would be taken to the site per year from the applicant Thurlow Estates landholding and other local farms. It would then undergo controlled decomposition, anaerobic digestion, to make the biogas. The planning application has now been published on the Suffolk County Council website. Councillor Bennett, whose Clare Ward includes Witherfields, said... The community rightly have concerns about this application and I will be making strong representations to the planning committee that this is the wrong place for an aerobic digester. Of course we must look at ways of generating energy in this country but it cannot be at such a detriment to the local community. Councillor Mason, whose Haverhill's Kangle Ward adjoins the site of the proposed plant, added the proposed development would result in the loss of perfectly good arable land. This location will certainly put additional transport movement pressure on the already busy A1307 and surrounding road infrastructure. The site will blight the landscape and it is unacceptable if there is any chance of pollutants entering the Stour Brook or order from the process affecting the well-being of the nearby communities. Any perceived environmental gains this site proposes through the creation of renewable energy does not outweigh the issues and understandable concerns expressed by so many residents in the district I represent in that county. The concerns raised by the councillors, as well as issues such as the increased risk of flooding to the land near Spring Grove Farm, have previously been voiced by Markoff Acorn, a campaign group formed to oppose the proposal, as well as, as, well as Withersfield Parish Council. 
Those potential pitfalls of the plant have previously been countered by Acorn Bioenergy and the planning statement issued as part of the application provided more details. It says the proposed AD facility would produce biomethane which would be used to peat homes and fuel vehicles. The proposed development would provide enough green gas to meet the heating demand of 7,650 UK households based on 14.1 watts per household. In comparison with standard UK grid emissions, the biomethane produced by the AD facility would have an equivalent saving of over 31,000 tonnes of COE each year, equivalent to taking almost 21,000 cars off the road. Energy resilience and self-sufficiency in energy, especially gas, is increasingly important in these times of rapidly rising fuel prices and uncertainty over imported energy. The production of biomethane would be in line with local and national targets for reducing CO emissions and reducing reliance on fossil fuels, whilst also contributing to fuel self-sufficiency. The solid and liquid digested output from the AD facility would be spread on surrounding farmland in place of artificial fertilisers, thereby reducing the reliance on imported fertiliser. <coughs> in summary, the proposed development is considered to provide a sustainable means of generating low-carbon renewable power and fertiliser, while supporting the resilience of the local rural community. Whilst arable land within the site would be lost, significant biodiversity net gain is achieved, which would be provided by strengthening the existing native planting, the creation of wildfire meadows and new trees planting along the route of the access road. Angry community leaders have branded the planned closure of the last major bank branch in a West Suffolk town another devastating blow for its high street. Lloyd's is set to close its Haverhill High Street branch with a listed closure date of June the 25th next year, that's 2024. A new banking hub run by the post office has been recommended for Haverhill by Link and Lloyd's has said if it is not up and running by the closure date, the branch will be kept open for up to 12 months, starting from the 20th of September 2023 meaning it will remain in the town until September 2024. Aaron Lucarni, who represents Haverhill Central on West Suffolk Council, said the closure announcement marked a sad and disappointing day for Haverhill residents and our high street. I'm naturally angry at all the major banks that have abandoned Haverhill and their customers, all of which closed without consulting the customers, he said. I am, however, pleased that Haverhill looks to be getting a banking hub. I hope to see this open in an existing high street shop. The banking hub will benefit all residents who have previously lost their bank branches and will go a long way in supporting the most vulnerable in our community with access to banking. Once again, a bank has put its profit before the needs of its most vulnerable customers. He also questioned where the hub would be situated and who would pay for it. I note that they say the post office will run it. The post office in Haverhill has been understaffed even to the point of unscheduled closures since it was franchised to a private company, he said. 
Pat Hanlon, who represents Haverhill East on West Suffolk Council, said, Haverhill, Haverhill has a population of nearly 30,000, with a new housing being built, adding another 10,000. This will affect many people who want advice from the bank on many things to do with financial matters in this cost of living crisis. I would like to ask the Lloyds Banking Group to think again about this closure that will have a devastating impact on our towns, shops, businesses and people. These are really worrying times for residents as so many of the services they were used to be increasingly unavailable within the town. Whilst the seemingly inevitable goal of the banking sector seems to want to move to a cashless society, it is the rate of change that is most alarming. I am receiving frequent complaints about the post office service which is not the solution for providing the services people need and Barclays Bank providing some services from the Arts Centre is most certainly not a long-term solution. According to Lloyd's, 81% of the branch's customers use other ways of banking, such as mobile, internet or phone banking, as well as other branches. A Lloyd's Bank spokesman said, Customers can use the local post office for everyday banking, which is a short walk away. Access cash at the nearby free-to-use ATMs, alongside other ways to bank such as over the phone and online or the new banking hub once it is up and running. When the Haverhill Bank closes, it will join Southwold and Mildenhall as some of the Suffolk towns with no banks. This year, Barclays and Sudbury closed its doors with the Barclays and Beckles set to shut in November. Very sad. Please. Celebrity couple set for village show. So meanwhile, life goes on. Former Manfred Mann lead singer Paul Jones and his actress wife Fiona Hendley will be appearing at Steeple Bumstead Congregational Church in November. Paul, whose hits include Do Wa Diddy Diddy and Pretty Flamingo, and Fiona, an accomplished actress who starred in acclaimed ITV drama Widows and took leading roles at the Royal National Theatre and the Royal Shakespeare Company, have a powerful story to tell. Together they will share their life stories and perform some gospel songs. Paul will talk about his time in the 60s and sing excerpts from his hits, and their testimony is humorous but compassionate and tells of how they met, fell in love and found true happiness after coming to faith in Jesus. The evening starts at 7pm on Friday, November the 17th. There is no charge. However, tickets are limited and available on a first-come, first-served basis only. Refreshments will be served afterwards. To register your interest in attending this one-off event, please email secretary.sbcc at gmail.com giving your name, contact details and number of tickets required. Consultation talks take place today to discuss whether a village on the coast of Suffolk should become a connector for two sources of energy. Talks between... National Grid and the residents of Warbleswick will be held to determine whether or not the National Grid's Lion Link plan should go ahead. The Lion Link proposal means that cables will run from the beach through the marshes and into the heart of the village, next to the street. This is where a five-acre site would be constructed 
becoming a connector for both fossil fuel energy and wind farm power. This would also include a haulage access road and 60 metre wide cable trenches. Lion Link has been done so that around 1.8 gigawatts of clean electricity can power approximately 1.8 million homes in Britain using Dutch offshore wind farms. Residents of Warbleswick are concerned, however, by saying this designated area of outstanding natural beauty will become an industrial wasteland if the proposals are allowed to carve motorway-sized trenches through the ecosystems. They also state that if Warbleswick is chosen, the four-year building process would decimate the village by turning it into a construction site. We will be ignoring the needs of a younger generation who will grow up in an industrial hub, hating what we are doing to their world. We will be dismissing the concerns of small businesses, many dependent on nature tourism, the area's main economy, and will witness the destruction to the area's beach wildlife and ancient ecosystems. Writer and Warbleswick resident Jan Etherington said, Not any of the areas they are proposing are suitable. They are all areas of outstanding natural beauty, and it is a threat what could happen to our beautiful Suffolk coast. National Grid has already held consultation talks in Southwold, another potential site, and are to have further talks in Leyston. Residents of, of Warbleswick have put forward a solution stating that National Grid could ditch all of the onshore options in East Suffolk and choose Bradwell-on-Sea for the project. After months of construction, a new store has opened in a Suffolk village. The co-op has opened a £620,000 state-of-the-art store in Hepworth Road in Stanton, near Bury St Edmunds. The store opened its doors for the first time on Friday, September the 15th and has been fitted with eco-friendly fridges, LED lighting and electric car charging points in an effort to be as sustainable as possible. A bike service station is also available providing a free-of-charge facility for cyclists to make necessary repairs and tune up their bicycles. While the shop will sell groceries, it will also feature a food-to-go section with hot food options and a Tango ice blast machine. Being a cooperative, our priority is given back to the communities we operate within, um, and Stanton is no exception, said Nicole Suchi, store manager. The team has done a fantastic job getting everything up and running for the launch, and it's great to see the hard work pay off as we finally open the doors to our new customers. The store is open from 7am to 10pm, Monday to Sunday. Two small areas of reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete, that's R-A-A-C, or RAC as it's commonly been referred to at the moment, have been found at a village school near Haverhill. The defective concrete, which has now been identified as present at 173 schools across the nation, according to the most recent list issued by the Department of Education. That list includes Steeple Bumstead Primary School, but the new discovery has not, says the school, caused any disruption to the pupils' education. A spokesperson for Unity Schools Partnership, of which Steeple Bumstead is a member, said, We can confirm that RAC was found in the school three years ago, 
and all that was found was subsequently removed. Following heightened awareness about RAC, a further intrusive survey took place earlier this month and two small areas of RAC were found. Both areas are not being used by the school until remedial work, expected in the next few weeks, takes place. There has been no disruption to children's education. Port's history and enduring legacy hailed. Maritime history has been celebrated as hidden treasures in a coastal town were showcased. With ten days of free-to-enjoy activities celebrating Lowestoft's rich history and culture, the town hosted the hugely popular Lowestoft Heritage Open Days Festival. As more events were held in Lowestoft than any other area in Suffolk, ABP's Associated British Ports, Port of Lowestoft, was thrilled to host a special guided tour of the historic port last Friday, September the 15th. A special open day gave people the unique opportunity to learn more about the UK's most easterly port and explore the inner and outer harbours. A spokesman for ABP said, ABP's Port of Lowestoft was proud to participate in this festival and provide visitors with a rare glimpse into its past, gain insights into its current operations and get a glimpse into its exciting future plans. Visitors were treated to a comprehensive tour of the port, covering both the inner and outer harbours, where they learned about the port's historical significance and the vital role it has played in supporting the local community. The tour concluded in the port office where various documents were on display, which allowed visitors to trace the port's journey from the construction of the original inner harbour in 1831 through to having built its reputation on fishing and the handling of agricultural produce and to its current role as a thriving centre for supporting the offshore energy industry. Tom Dewitt, Operations Manager at ABB's Port of Lowestoft, said... The Heritage Open Days event at ABB's Port of Lowestoft were both a celebration of the port's history and enduring legacy and provided an opportunity for the local community to learn more about ABB's future plans for the port. We are immensely proud of the port's role in Lowestoft's heritage and ABP is committed to supporting the continued growth and development of the port, the town and the region. An MP has hit out at plans to build the UK's largest solar farm on the West Suffolk border after they were delayed until December. The proposed Seneca Energy Farm would see the 2,500 acre development built across the border between East Cambridgeshire and West Suffolk, including in Mildenhall, Westrow, Freckenham and Worlington. The application by Seneca Limited was due to be decided by next Thursday, but this week the Department for Energy, Security and Net Zero set a new decision deadline of December the 7th. West Suffolk MP Matt Hancock, who has opposed the plans since the beginning, said delaying the plans is not enough. This decision should have been delayed, shouldn't have been delayed. It should have been rejected and the huge worry for local residents finally put to rest, he said. The development is too big, the scale is too vast, and it's in completely the wrong location. It will turn our beautiful Suffolk villages into industrial zones. Seneca's current proposal is not only dangerous, but it's undermining support for renewables, and it needs to go back to the drawing board. 
But in March, Suffolk County Council, along with other local authorities, was put together a report on what it considered serious shortcomings. With the plans, the report was submitted to the Planning Inspectorate. Areas of concern for the councils include the geographic scale of the proposal, which will permanently transform the landscape, and the impact on local communities during the 24-month construction period. Last year, a Say No to Sonica protest, led by Matt Hancock and Lucy Fraser, MP for South East Cambridgeshire, saw about 200 people march from Mildenhall to the site of part of the proposed solar farm. Fiona Cairns, director of the Suffolk Preservation Society, said, This delay by the government will only add to the anxieties of affected communities. While the society supports appropriately located and scaled solar schemes, we believe that Seneca is an environmentally damaging proposal and needs to be rejected once and for all. A spokesperson for Seneca said, We note that the Secretary of State for Energy Security and Net Zero has extended the decision period for Seneca. The UK needs to double the amount of renewable energy it generates by 2050. Seneca would make a significant contribution to this goal. We will continue to work with the Secretary of State to provide them with any information they require to determine our DCO application. Barry St Edmunds has scooped three awards for its floral prowess of Anglia in Bloom. The Berry in Bloom campaign triumphed with Best Public Open Space for the Abbey Gardens, Gold in the Large Town category, making the town a 12 times gold winner and silver for Knighton Park. Chris Wiley, who is his, in his first year as coordinator of Berry in Bloom, praised the campaign's volunteers. It's a huge sense of relief, he said. There was a lot of work going into it this year, picking up the baton and seeing everything through to completion. I'm very happy with the result in the first year I've been doing it. I know where to improve for next year and what also to enter, so it's onwards and upwards. It's a great achievement for the first year of taking on the coordinator role. The awards were held in Huntington, with Robin Burnett, Chairman of Berry and Bloom, Linda Seldes, Coordinator of Abbey Gardens Friends, Fiona Till, Green Fingers Coordinator, Simon Hobson, Abbey Gardens Manager, and Dave Morris, Tollgate Primary School Teacher, in attendance. Asked about his proudest moments from the campaign this year, Chris said it was a community participation, including schools, care homes and other voluntary groups. It's a nice feeling to know everyone wants to participate, he said. Judging was held mid-July, and although he's not yet read their comments, Mr Wiley said the judges were very pleased with the high-quality beds, the green spaces and its various features. On what he has learnt from this year, he said, there are a lot more categories I would like to enter for next year. Now I've seen how it works. There's a lot more that I think we've got potential for. We will go much bigger next year, that's for sure. Chris added, thank you to everybody who volunteered to help us this year. Be it small jobs like litter picking and bigger jobs like looking after the floral displays around town and everything in between. A college in Ipswich is set to host a long-running BBC Radio 4 show next week, with admission free to the public. Celebrating its 75th year of broadcasting this year, BBC's Any Questions will air live from one sixth form college in Ipswich on September the 29th. 
Within eight days, Ipswich will have hosted two of the BBC's political question show offerings, with question time being held in the town on Thursday. The host of Any Questions, Alex Forsyth, is set to be joined by Labour MP Annalise Dodds and the Australian former Liberal Party leader Alexander Downer. Two others will complete the panel drawn from the worlds of politics, media and commentary. A few tickets remain available for this production, which starts at 6.30pm and has due to end at 9pm. Group 6 form principal Jake Robinson said, I believe that this is the UK's longest-running discussion programme and it's a great opportunity for our students to get a real-life glimpse into the world of politics and the media right on their doorstep. Residents' relief as obstacle course key road resurfaced. The long-awaited resurfacing of a key road in a town which was branded an obstacle course has been welcomed by its community. Many residents in Mildenhall had expressed concerns over the 50-metre stretch of the A1101 Berry Road off the A11 at Five Ways Roundabout in Barton Mills. Previous comments about the road said it was covered in craters, was like driving over rumble strips and posed a danger to road users, particularly motorcyclists. West Suffolk Councillor Andy Neal said, I am pleased to see the persistence of the public and councillors have produced the de- desired result. Some of the responses to the road surfacing included, Persistence pays off. This is no less than what we deserve. Finally, now I don't have to worry about my coffee going everywhere. And just came home and thought, hang on, where's the obstacle course gone? And now we're going to do some letters. And my first letter is from Ron Hall, who is an RNIB ambassador. Station as friend to thousands. When I was growing up in Essex, I was sports mad. I was about eight when I was playing football, went down to head the ball, and another lad went up with his foot and basically knocked me out. It detached my retina and I lost the sight in one eye. Earlier this year, I was lucky enough to appear on the ITV2 show Winter Love Island, and I was able to talk about how sight loss had affected me more publicly. This resulted in me becoming an ambassador for the Royal National Institute of Blind People, RNIB, which offers amazing support to people with sight loss. RNIB is often there for people at a critical time. One of the ways it reaches out and brings people with sight loss together is through its dedicated radio station, RNIB Connect Radio. The station turns 20 this year. The reason I want to take part is to let people know about the RNIB Connect Radio and the brilliant work it does. The station started in 2003 and now reaches over 90,000 listeners and its podcasts are downloaded over 20,000 times each month. Its DJs, who all have sight loss, broadcast a huge range of programmes alongside an eclectic mix of music, quizzes and news. These include shows on the latest technology that can assist people with sight loss and the latest talking books that can be downloaded from the RNIB's library. They highlight vital support services like RNIB counselling, talk and support groups and eye care liaison officers 
who are a massive support to thousands of patients attending eye clinics each year. The station covers key campaign issues like getting accessible information in written form, the potential closure of train station ticket offices and the low rate of employment for people with sight loss. In short, RNIB Radio Connect is a friend to thousands of listeners with sight loss and could reach many more. So please help spread the word and tune in for a special month of anniversary programmes throughout September and get to know RNIB Connect Radio. RNIB Connect Radio can be heard on 101 FM in the Glasgow area and elsewhere on Freeview 730 and online at https colon double hash forward hash www.rnib.org.uk forward slash connect hyphen radio forward slash we can always repeat those numbers at the end of the programme good idea yes I'll do that meanwhile ordinary people but extraordinary good deeds so this is from Barry Peters the editor of the Berry Free Press cast your mind back to school we all remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, that helpful chap who steps in to offer support after two others walk past a man who's been robbed. As a child, I remember I always wanted to be that man, helping others. It seemed the right thing to do, and it still does. That's one of the reasons why the Berry Free Press teamed up with Berry St Edmunds Town Council to back the town's community awards. In all of our towns, be that Stowmarket, Mildenhall, Thetford or Berry, there are people doing good things which often go under the radar. Remarkable deeds, but done without any idea of winning praise. So the Community Awards enable us to shine a light on those deeds and let others know about the great charity work, the very local neighbourly help out there, and the groups who are going above and beyond to support those less fortunate than we are. I love the Community Awards. More importantly, the good deeds always inspire me for another 12 months to try to be my best self with others. And my next letter is from Ian Smith, Bury St Edmunds. Move on and quit moaning. Oh dear, what a disappointment. I should have been prepared. My apology to John Bailey was not accepted in a totally gracious manner, in my opinion. Letters, September the 11th. John could not resist making capital out of my letter, saying it proves how little Brexiteers actually researched and evaluated the potential effect of Brexit. Well, to John's mind, that may well be the case. As I previously expressed, I wasn't concerned in 2016 about who was going around the country in the red or blue battle buses. After decades of campaigning and then delivering literature on behalf of both Leave EU and the official Vote Leave groups, but not Nigel Farage's grassroots campaign, the Goal Movement, which did put in a bid to become the official pro-Brexit campaign group, but as we know, was not successful. If all this proves something to John, so be it. It seems to me that all EU zealots tend to act like ostriches and choose not to recognise or look at any benefits that Britain has gained since leaving the EU. There are none according to them, and it appears to me they tend to talk Britain down most of the time 
and glory in the negative. EU fanatics can carry on mourning and pointing the finger at this. And that situation, blaming it on our departure from the EU, all with my blessing, as for me, it's 2023, not June 2016. Time to move on and quit mourning. Now, Tom Murray from Bury St Edmunds writes about a decision that will affect us for decades to come. I don't think it's anything to do with Brexit. <laughs> I was deeply concerned by the news in last week's Bury Free Press of the wholesale cancellation of the proposed Western Way hub development plans for Bury St Edmunds and surrounding areas. I've always considered that local issues such as this plan have local solutions for local people. That's the gold standard of public service and politics in Bury, including our town councillors and West Suffolk Council councillors. The Western Way project is a massive multi-million pound project and I can understand that it's being looked at in light of present financial difficulties with some major councils going bust and the current high levels of building and construction costs. However, I am disappointed that the current West Suffolk administration did not think to look at alternatives, how to save costs, how to spread the financial load, how to change the existing plans, modify the final outcomes, at least have the common courtesy to consult the voters for our views. I've always believed that the impossible is possible. It just takes a bit lot longer. This seems to be a knee-jerk reaction to a very serious decision affecting all of Bury and surrounding areas, affecting every citizen and voters for decades to come. A detailed revised plan would be the right way to go, including the reality of current costs, costs involved with any delay, surely we have the right to know what actions are being done and considered in our name. My next letter is from B.E. Whiting, Kelsale. Work was long overdue. In response to the letter from Janet Douglas, letter of September the 18th, I do not understand why, in her opinion, central planting on dual carriageways is there for protection in the event of someone veering off the carriageway. Surely that is the reason central barriers are in place, which could be rendered totally ineffective by the presence of the shrubbery. In the case in question, the shrubbery was never planted on the central reservation intentionally, but is there through years of neglect. My own opinion is that work carried out to remove the vegetation and rubbish has vastly improved the appearance of the carriageway, which I have mentioned needed to be done several times whilst driving along the route in both directions. I had wondered how long it would be before someone complained about the temporary hold-up while the work is carried out. But don't blame the workers, blame the health and safety regulations. I don't think many people will question why it has been done. My only other thought is that the work should not stop here but extend right across the county, both on central reservations and roadside verges, which impose extremely dangerous driving conditions. We're opposed to nuclear weapons, so says the Berries and Edmunds Meeting House, the Quaker Meeting House in St John Street. And they write, Berries and Edmunds Quakers held a silent witness on Angel Hill to oppose the return of nuclear weapons to RAF Lakenheath. The Federation of American Scientists says there's a strong implication that Washington is in the process of re-establishing its nuclear weapons presence here for the first time in 15 years, 
as US budget documents reveal that storage vaults at Lakenheath are being upgraded to house B-61, 12 guided nuclear bombs. The deployment of these weapons marks a dangerous escalation in global tensions and ensures Britain will be targeted in the event of nuclear war. The campaign for nuclear disarmament has designated September the 23rd as a day of national action. It also marks the day, first day of National Quaker Week and Bury St Edmunds Quaker Meeting joined with protesters throughout the country in calling on the government of the United Kingdom to stop the US citing their nuclear weapons in Britain and to engage in efforts to de-escalate global nuclear tensions throughout, through dialogue and diplomacy. Quakers believe that no one has the right to use these weapons in their defence or to ask another person to use them on their behalf and that every human person is unique, precious, a child of God. Uh, my next letter is John Sayers, Sudbury. Time has come to bring in the experts. As a lad, Bellevue Park was always a popular stamping ground, enjoyed by residents and visitors alike. The park is a very important area for recreation, and I look forward to its future enhancement. I think the time has come to engage with landscape gardeners to produce some ideas for transforming the old swimming pool site off Newton Road. Perhaps we could even launch a landscaping competition with local residents involved in the selection process of the best scheme. This matter has been grounded for far too long. The, R, the, the RAC or the RAAC crisis, children have been let down. Adrian Stower writes via email, I found myself viewing our country as broken, this time over the announcement of RAC concrete in a number of public buildings. How could this be allowed to happen, I ask? Our children deserve better. They deserve to feel safe. It would seem the government knew about the issue for some time, but only decided to do something about it now. Education is so important to all our children, and they've been well and truly let down by a government which is guilty of taking its eye off the ball. This has to stop. And my next letter is from Mike Taylor of Leyston. Uh, this is a long letter. Don't repeat past failures. The opinion piece from Jack Abbott, September the 15th, regarding years of neglect and East's time to shine, fails to recognise that here in East Suffolk, many people do not want to be part of clean energy superpower. If that includes unnecessary and expensive projects like Sizewell Sea or interconnectors, offshore grids and their accompanying massive damage to our environment, a policy embraced by many Conservative MPs and councillors. The enormous future cost to UK taxpayers, £130 billion at today's prices, of dismantling the original fleet of nuclear power stations cannot be completed for over 100 years. Presumably, we will then add the cost of decommissioning the EDF-owned fleet to that bill, which will probably nearly double it. Whilst we have no firm plan or the likely cost of what to do with nuclear waste built up at Sellafield and sitting in the dry fuel store at Sizewell B, there are numerous jobs from transition technologies and many jobs over decades. Decommissioning nuclear power stations. What would be the point of building two reactors, which I believe are considered obsolete now, for a claimed 60-year lifetime, 
and have a massive carbon footprint from millions of tonnes of construction over 12 years, when the alternatives are cheaper, more flexible, less disruptive, and do not leave the debt for future taxpayers. Why would anyone want to invest in what seems to me an appalling, ill-conceived Sizewell project proposed to be built within metres of the North Sea? Climate change is now clearly real, with new reports showing just how bad this could get. We must speed up transition at an affordable price, or we have no future as a planet. This government has, for example, failed to improve housing standards, which could save 30% on electricity and 65% less heat demand. Our public buildings also need urgent attention. Not difficult, surely, to see where to save money, reduce CO2 and employ people. Surely there are policies Labour should embrace for the benefit of people and the environment which will highlight the current government's failings without costing the earth like the new nuclear revival. Contrasting opinions, so Audrey Naylor from Ipswich writes, Thank you for publishing the two contrasting opinions by Tom Hunt and Jack Abbott, September the 8th, on the recent scandal regarding crisis over building quality. I was going to research to see if Mr Hunt was being as facile as I suspected in blaming Ipswich Borough Council for failings over buildings, but I see the Labour MP in waiting, Mr Jack Abbott, has sorted this controversy being absolutely on the button providing a detailed array of facts, figures and substantiated reasons for school maintenance neglect being squarely in the Conservatives' court. Also, it has been reported that funding for school rebuilding was reduced by 46.5% by the Treasury while Mr Sunak was Chancellor. A speech by Bridget Phillipson, Labour MP, Hansard in May 2023, highlighted the difficulty in getting the government to make public the data on the condition grades of school buildings around the UK. It seems to me that Tom Hunt eulogises about his workload, his holidays, birthday and football in detail, but his detail on politics is somewhat scant. Goodbye, Mr Tom Hunt. Bring on the election. And this letter from Maggie Elder, the Paddock's Bewers. We have come to dread warm weather. I have been a resident in Bures for over 30 years and chose to live in a quiet village. We are a welcoming community and are happy to share the village with visitors. However, over the past five or six years we have been plagued every time the sun shines with hordes of rude and abusive youngsters who arrive on trains from Sudbury and abuse our hospitality. Rather naively, we felt this year that we had escaped lightly. Many youngsters came after the public examinations finished, and police and an ambulance had to be called to deal with drunkenness. The police issued a dispersal order, and thanks to the inclement weather this summer, we have been able to enjoy our village as we should be able to do. Unfortunately, with the arrival of the warmer weather in September, the hordes returned and vandalised a newly installed memorial clock on the cricket pavilion and the security camera was ripped down and discarded. These people destroy with impunity and leave their rubbish for volunteers to clear away. Of course, many of our visitors are respectful and we welcome them, but many are unsupervised youths who arrive with their alcohol and loud music and one can only assume that their parents don't care what they get up to when out of their sight. 
Many villagers dread the sun shining as we know that they will be invaded. One of the local schools did send a letter home to all their parents warning of the consequences of visiting viewers and behaving in an antisocial manner. But even this was not deterred the young people. We are at a loss at how we can remain a welcoming community but be able to enjoy our own village. A case of card confusion. This is uh, from Clifford Davy, Stowmarket. It seems many people are using cash rather than cards, as we got used to doing in COVID times. Personally, I use both methods for payments, but on occasions with various cards in my wallet, it can get confusing. For example, with granddaughter Ellie, we called in at the local corner shop. Ellie placed several items in the basket and at the till the assistant rang up the total. Papa, as Ellie Cattell calls me, went to pay as usual, only to find my card wasn't accepted. No wonder. It was my Ipswich Town season ticket. Laughter all round. And there's more. I've tried to gain entrance to Portman Road with my bus pass on another occasion. My credit card. Told you it could card. Told you. And now we'd like to move on to uh, some features. And this one is from our local historian, Martin Taylor. And this time it's about the Queen's links to town or all relative. What was the connection of the ill-fated nine-day Queen of England, Lady Jane Grey, 1537 to 1554, with Bury St Edmunds? It was through her grandmother, Mary Tudor, the younger sister of King Henry VIII. Mary had been married via an arranged marriage by her brother, albeit very briefly, to King Louis VII of France. Sorry. <clears throat> After his death, she spent a quarantine period at Cluny Abbey in case she was pregnant. Carrying the future King of France, she was not, uh, she was not and Henry VIII sent a trusted courier, Charles Brandon, to fetch her back to England. Brandon, Duke of Suffolk, was a bit of a philanderer and was the son of Sir William Brandon, the standard bearer of Henry VII, killed at the Battle of Bosworth, which brought the Tudor dynasty to power. By way of thanks, Charles was brought up in Tudor household and certainly knew the vivacious Mary, but as far as known, there was no impropriety between them. Charles Brandon's mission in 1515, was to recover the valuable asset for Henry, that of his sisters as Queen of France. However, it ended with Mary asking Charles to marry her. He had one chance and that was it. Charles could hardly turn his offer down and took it. But in doing so, the newlywed couple incurred Henry's wrath, marrying without the king's permission, was treasonable but both escaped execution and on their return to England were, in effect, banished from court to Westhorpe, a village about 13 miles from Bury. The royal couple had four children. Frances, the oldest daughter, married well. Henry Grey, the third Marquess of Dorset. They were the parents of Lady Jane Grey. With the death of Henry VIII in 1547, his son, the sickly Edward VI, came to the throne at the age of nine. An ardent Protestant, he was vehemently opposed to a return to Catholic faith, his father having installed the Anglican Church of England in its stead. 
Unfortunately, Edward was to die unmarried, aged 15 years old, again probably from TB, and with no heirs as a power vacuum was created. Who was to fill it? By the terms of his father's will, his half-sister Mary, daughter of Catherine of Aragon, was the rightful heir, but she was a Catholic. On Edward's death, he was persuaded by John Dudley, the Duke of Northumberland, to allow the Crown of England to pass to a Protestant, the wife of his son, Lord Guilford Dudley, none other than Edward's cousin, Lady Jane Grey. Unfortunately, Jane was to be a pawn in the power struggle for the throne, when she was declared Queen in 1553. The Dudleys had not reckoned on the support the rightful heir had, as neither the Commons nor Lords supported the usurper. After Mary raised her standard at Framlingham, the county flocked to her, and gathering momentum she marched to London triumphantly. The wrongdoers arrested and thrown in the Tower of London. The miscreant duke was summarily executed on August 22nd, 1553. His son, the daughter-in-law Lady Jane Grey, followed on February 12th, 1554. After some soul-searching by the now rightfully crowned Queen Mary, the first regnant Queen of England, youthful Lady Jane Grey, aged just 17, did not recant her Protestant beliefs, which probably coloured Mary's decision. Jane joined two other headless queens, Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, in the chapel of St Peter at Vincula at the Tower of London. As for Jane's father, Henry Grey, he too was beheaded for his part in the intrigues, while her mother, Frances, was eventually pardoned. Fascinating, but I don't think I'd pass an exam with all that knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad it's written down. <laughs> <laughs> now we're going to talk about a steam engine. Caroline steams ahead in the popularity stakes. A 143-year-old steam engine was the star of the show at the tour of Chauntry Mills, the Haverhill Heritage event that took place on Saturday. Caroline was installed at the Gertine site in 1880 and was fired up by company director Charles Gertine to allow visitors to see her in action and witness how the 18, sorry, the 16-foot, 7-ton flywheel still turns smoothly and relatively quietly in the adjoining rope race room. Haverhill Family History Group and Haverhill Local History Museum joined forces with Chantry Mills to make the event possible. Brian Thompson, representing both groups, said the response to this historic event was tremendous. Over 200 people took the chance to visit during the four hours of opening and appreciated having the opportunity to see Caroline in all her glory. Haverhill Family History Group also displayed their poster exhibition which focused on Chauntry Mill's employers and employees and some items from the Gertine private collection, including a sample of what they are well known for, a drabbit smock. Mr Thompson added, there are just three events left to go and we hope that they will be as popular as the Chantry Mills one was. These are free to attend. And my next article is Safety concerns have emerged over potholes on a main road near the Suffolk-Essex border amid reports that vehicles are moving on to the wrong side to avoid hitting them. More than a dozen potholes have been reported along the street at Foxearth 
as well as the adjoining School Street and Halstead Road, according to the Essex Highway's online reporting tool. The digital map indicates that many of the defects have been inspected and are awaiting or have completed repairs. However, regular commuter James Hearn, who travels along the street to work in nearby Pentlow, criticised the speed and quality of the work, stating that the number and severity of these defects were seriously damaging cars. A lot of the potholes on that road would previously damage your vehicle, would seriously damage your vehicle, I beg your pardon, he told the Free Press. It's so dangerous that journeys, because people are trying to avoid the potholes and going to onto the other side of the road, so you have to avoid them. If I were a cyclist going down that road, I wouldn't survive. Mr Hearn cited one pothole located to the next junction with Huntsman's Lane, which he reported in early August after bursting one of his tyres upon hitting it. I counted 47 holes in my tyre. I'm surprised it didn't crash the car because it was that bad. It completely shredded the tyre. I reported it and took them. it took them about three weeks to respond, so I wouldn't say they were very responsive. They repaired it, but it's not a very good fix. I reckon if you've got one big lorry come along, it will be back again. Give it two weeks and it will be back again. The Free Press contacted, contacted Essex County Council for comment, but had not received a response prior to going to press. According to the Essex Highways website, all reported defects are assessed before repairs are prioritised based on their size and the road they are located on, with high traffic A roads given top priority. Service to honour pets dementia role. An annual pet service and blessing uh, was acknowledged or has acknowledged the role animals play in supporting people in need, particularly those living with dementia. The service held at Leelith Cathedral on Sunday at 2pm was a very special occasion for pet owners, animal lovers and all those involved in animal welfare. This year there was a focus on the important role animals can play for those living with dementia. The service was supported by singers from All in Sound, an Ely-based specialist choir that provides high-quality music-making opportunities for people in the community with a focus on improved well-being and self-esteem. They performed alongside Ely's Sing, Together Choir for people living with dementia and their carers. Catherine Rowland, its founder and director of both groups, said, We are so delighted to be invited to sing at Ely Cathedral's animal service and have been practising hard special songs for the occasion and look forward to being joined by our friends from Sing, Choirs too. As always, the cathedral is looking forward to welcoming numerous animals, including dogs, cats, guinea pigs, rabbits, ferrets, donkeys, alpacas and even chickens. The service and pet blessing will acknowledge and celebrate the role of working animals and animal charities. All proceeds from the event will benefit local branches of animal welfare and support organisation, including the Donkey Sanctuary, Pets as Therapy, Therapy Pets and the Blue Cross, all of whom will be represented. Guest preacher Canon Jan Payne is an ambassador for the Alzheimer's Society, Dementia Friends, and hopes to be supported by her Dachshund Grand Dog. The animal service is one of the highlights for many staff, volunteers and other members of the cathedral community, as well as local residents, she said. 
before uh, Sue closes out, uh, I'd just like to repeat the contact information for the RNIB Connect Radio. Uh, as I said, that can be heard on 101 FM in the Glasgow area and elsewhere on Freeview 730 and online at https colon forward slash forward slash www.rnib.org.uk forward slash connect hyphen radio forward slash apologies for the the long contact details there but we felt that's quite an important one to announce over to you Sue. so now we're coming to the end of this edition of st edmund's renews talk if you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you've been given alternatively you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us we'd like to acknowledge our appreciation to the berry free press East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and the Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. Our news talk will be back again next week, so until then, from Roger, Graham, myself, Sue, it's good night. Good night. been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.